This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I am Jeff Stark. We have another thrilling edition for you today. It's a sense-centric episode. Try saying that five times fast. As we interview Chuck Daughtry, founder of The Scent Project, an initiative to catalog the number of cents of different dates and mint marks in circulation and to identify varieties. We also are going to be discussing the release of Zach Edick and Jamie Kobach's film, Heads up, when will we stop making sense? In addition to our usual bevy of excellent numismatic content. Yes, this week our episode is totally uncensored. Uh, And if you're liking every episode or any of these episodes, we humbly ask you to subscribe and share it with your hobby and other friends and enemies, because that allows us to do what we do here every week. I think probably the the top story this episode, though, relates to the continuing fluctuation in precious metals prices, maybe? Yeah, I would agree with that. In the previous couple of episodes, we've talked uh, at some length about the record-breaking gold price and a sharp uptick in silver. We actually initially reported on silver because that was the first metal to experience a jump. And then gold, of course, shot like a rocket just through, you know, past the 2011 price ceiling. But we have since seen some settling in the precious metals market. Gold, either yesterday or the day before, we're recording this on August 13th, and yesterday, the day before, sometime or, you know, early in the second week of August or so, precious metal prices started to fall again. Gold felt like $86 inside of a day, right? Yeah, but now, you know, as we're recording, though, gold has gained some momentum back. It's around $1,950. Silver is around $27. So some of those uh, erosions are, are, you know, some of the price erosion has been rebuffed and, you know, there's positive movement back upward. And gosh, what a contrast, especially you look at silver where silver was three months ago, four months ago, uh, five months ago, I guess, you know, half the price. Now, obviously, the premiums that exist for bullion these days, I'm seeing uh, silver American Eagles with silver at $27. They're selling for 6 to $8 above uh, spot per coin. The premium for gold one ounce Eagles seems to be around $100, give or take either side of that, depending on source and all that. There's definitely demand still there, lots of people moving into the markets, and it it will be something that's, you know, an ongoing story, I think, for the remainder of this year and election year. We have that uncertainty. We have the global pandemic. There's, you know, lots of markers to to the economy that just uh, suggest that this story is not going away. It's not only not going away, but I think it's also a pretty dire warning sign that we might be in for some pretty unpleasant economic realities in the coming weeks and months because the sort of rule of thumb that so many people apply to precious metals is that they operate sort of inverse to the economy at large. Now, 
the extent to which the stock market is a good indication of the health of the economy, I think is a very worthy debate that uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to have, but I, I do know that there's there's quite a bit of discussion as to whether that's an effective barometer of economic health. But with that aside, the, the rule of thumb is, you know, when the economy is doing poorly or when the stock market is doing poorly, metals tend to do relatively well, or at least they tend to, to gain. And so the question is, is this a sign of coming financial collapse? I mean, with the end of the unemployment plus up, although now with President Trump's executive order, that's sort of muddying the waters a little bit there. But with the future of the unemployment plus up in jeopardy and the end of the eviction moratorium, which could end up, you know, putting a lot of people out onto the street, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty, Jeff, as you alluded to in an election year with the pandemic. So we'll keep on tracking the story and, you know, we'll keep all you listeners updated on basically what happens, though I imagine anyone who's listening to the Coin World podcast probably, you know, it's, at it's least tracks again, the yeah. metals market. And probably tracks the metals market at least very broadly, or is at least generally aware of where it's going. Yeah, so, and I, but I would I would also caution quickly that the market itself has been robust, which is I think many people it surprises many people for some of the reasons that you cited, and so we could very well be experiencing a situation where the real economy is suffering, is flagging. And regardless of what the stock market shows, that suffering, that stagnation, that pain is um, being felt as as the precious metals prices are leading to or helping fuel the, the price rise in precious metals. So uh, in, interesting times. It certainly is. And I would I would add just quickly that the health of the stock market, you know, <laughs> without getting too far into something that I already qualified myself as being unqualified uh, unable to fully discuss <laughs> but i mean i do think it's worth understanding that you know the percentage of americans at different income brackets that are actually invested in the stock market you know that fluctuation is only going to impact a certain number of people because you know wealthy people own such a vast majority of stocks bonds and and other investments that you know those fluctuations in some ways are untethered from the economic realities that a lot of quote unquote, ordinary Americans are facing. So it's worth understanding that the relationship there is not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily communicate how the economy is doing for everyone so much well, as sure. it's communicating how certain investments are doing for certain groups of people. I, I, I believe the statistic is somewhere around 50% of the population has access to the um, markets through like 401ks, IRAs, that kind of thing. Uh, the beautiful thing about precious metals though, of course, is that anybody can walk into a coin shop or order online and drop down 30 to $50 and get an ounce of silver or, you know, a couple hundred bucks and get a, a fractional 20th ounce of gold or something. So the entry point precious metals serve as such a great store of wealth. I wouldn't say investment, but store of wealth for the everyday American that, uh, you know, just wants to have something cool to hold on to, to look at, to collect, you know, you don't have to set up a, an, an exchange traded fund. You don't have to, you know, set up all these online accounts and, and have, you know, $5,000 minimum buy-ins and this and that. It's, it's much more accessible. So, Which is one reason that metals are uh, definitely an interesting area to either invest in or just, or just you know, as you mentioned, Jeff, you know, buy a sort of a, a hedge or a, a store of wealth. So yeah. anyway, with that, um, that's right out of the way. Let's let's go over to some some coins that don't have a lot of precious metal value. Uh, Not the many value. Period. 
<laughs> yeah, very little value of any kind. And in fact, their non-precious metal value outstrips their face value. Uh, and that's the scent. So uh, as I alluded to at the top of the show, Zach Yedick and Jamie Kovac, friends of the show, who uh, we had on to interview, God, a couple months ago now, their film, Heads Up, uh, Will We Stop Making Sense, is now streaming on Amazon. So, you know, anyone who's interested in seeing the film, which Jeff and I have both watched, and I think we both, I don't want to speak for you, Jeff, but I think we both highly recommend it. Um, It was enjoyable. It was fun to see an aspect of the hobby and and the economy through the lens of somebody who's not a collector. People who are not collectors. And they also just had a great range of guests and interviews. I mean, I I just I I thought that they they talked to a really wonderful variety of of people. And I love the story. They they told the story on the podcast. So if you you haven't heard the episode, please uh, go back and and give it a listen. It's, It's worth hearing. Their story that they told about how each person they talked to referred them to other people to talk to, and that kind of deepened their research process, and it kind of turned into a bit of a journey. And they traveled around in the summer of 2017, interviewing people and hearing about new people to talk to. I found that story very compelling, and the film itself is as nuanced and sophisticated a dive into the issue as you're probably going to find anywhere. I think that you know you have your standard you know, thousand word or so analysis on major news sites, which basically say the scent isn't worth its face value. Then you have, you know, like, like John Oliver did, I think like a 10 minute segment on it. And it was a fine segment for what it was, but, you know, Edik and Kovac's analysis and, and dive into the issue really demonstrates the, not only the richness of the discussion, but, you know, it's, it's potential real world impacts. So go stream it on Amazon if you can. Uh, if you are not an Amazon person, which I would not in any way fault you for, because, you know, resist jeff bezos um if you're not an amazon person you can contact and we'll put this down in the in the show notes um you can contact edik and kovach and they can provide uh you with information about how to get a um like physical media hard copy, copy. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah yeah physical media i think is the term that people use to describe dvds and stuff now so uh we'll include that information um and i'll double check with them where you should direct those inquiries but definitely if you can give it a watch we had a wonderful interview with them and the film itself is edifying and, and useful so definitely check that out now you know we're, we're dealing with contemporary issues precious metal prices um you know new films coming out what was going on this week in numismatic history jeff so we're going to go from one cent to the whopping five cent coin what was happening this week well let's go back to august 18 1942 i've just given it away a little bit i think with the year and the denomination but that was the date that the philadelphia mint began the production of the wartime five cent coin that's the uh, 35% silver nickel that has the mint mark above of Monticello on the reverse. That's, you know, a nice little short set for somebody who's looking for something fun and affordable to collect. Of course, the prices for most of those uh, examples are driven by the precious metals price, but you can get some nice uncirculated or about uncirculated examples. I've seen different holders that the set runs from part of 42 through 1945. And I think there's 13 coins in there, 11 coins, something like that. And it's, um, it makes a nice little display. It's silver. It's World War II history. It's affordable. So that's, um, I don't know, for those reasons, I thought that jumped out in looking at the annals of history as something fun and interesting for our discussion this week. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a great short set. I bought a circulated, you know, dark toned, not super heavily circulated, but decently well circulated set. I got it for like 12 bucks. You can find them now. That's yeah. You know, how long uh, ago was that? 
Uh, three or four years. Yeah, I was going to say, because Silver Now, I think that's, you know. Oh, no, no, yeah. So, no, yeah. Silver Now would drive the price up a uh, ways. But you can buy, I mean, you can get a circulated set all put together. I mean, it, you know, for people who want to seek out the individual entries, you know, that might be part of the joy of it for you, in which case, you oh, know, sure. don't buy the whole set. And plugging them into the holes in the Blue Whitman folders and, you Yeah, know, I mean, or, if, if, if people want to do that, and I think that's a wonderful way to do it, you can. But you can get a full, uh, you know, if you just want, like, presentation, uh, an inexpensive presentation piece to illustrate the compositional change and to illustrate the range of years and mints you can buy a circulated set for not a tremendous amount of money and again like i said it makes for a great presentation piece it makes a good conversation starter so no it's 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 a really fun set so awesome that's what was happening this week in history let's go back and look at coin world history this week and we're going back to 1982 we chose 1982 chris did uh because that was a year of tremendous change no pun intended uh for the lincoln <laughs> cent there were multiple metal versions and mint marks and date sizes and all that stuff for uh, 1982 cents. You may have seen little custom made private made sets that have the seven different versions of the scent around that time. Uh, so 1982, since we're, we're talking uh, with Chuck Daughtry about searching for scents, that is, is our focus or impetus this week. And what was happening that week in coin world history? Well, on the cover, we have a call out to Boston as being the site of the American Numismatic Association annual convention. And uh, of course, Regular listeners will know how special that is for Chris. Yeah, it's, you know, I would have loved to have made it to the show, but I wouldn't be born for another 14 years. So I was unable to make it to the, (laughs) I wasn't able to make it to the ANA convention in 1982, nor were my parents because they were living in New Orleans at the time. However, However, 14 years after you were born, you did go to an ANA convention in Boston. I I did. In 2010. I did. That was my, my first, my first of currently only two. Um, A conventions, uh, 2010 and 2019 are the two that I've uh, been to. And 2020 and I, I, would have been three, but of course that's canceled. So yep. maybe oh, and I would have year. loved this as a personal aside. I would have loved to have gone to Pittsburgh because it is an awesome city that in which I would love to spend some more time. Yeah. And, and I've never been to Pittsburgh and I was, uh, was so looking forward yeah. to that. Honestly, if I was going to live anywhere outside of new England, that isn't Ohio, obviously. It would probably be in Pittsburgh. I've spent a little bit of time in the city, and I just think it's really cool. So sure. shame. It's a shame it got canceled, but 2021 hopefully will be on because with any luck, we will, you know, the COVID-19 crisis will have abated somewhat. Remind me, I just, I'm sure I knew this and I'm just blanking on it now. What city is 2021 going to be in? Are they? I believe we're Pittsburgh? going back to Chicago-ish. I say oh, okay. sh- I say Chicago ish because it's Rosemont and and uh, <laughs> I saw in my Facebook memories that several years ago when we were in Rosemont for a show, you know, Chicago is is called the city of broad shoulders, and I said um, something I it was about called the Windy City. Well, it is the Windy City, right? But it's the city of broad shoulders, and I quipped that Chicago may be the city of broad shoulders, but I think Rosemont's the armpit. Now, that was... (laughs) (laughs) And and any denizens of Rosemont that are listening are just going to love that. (laughs) So so I do uh, think that, you know, Rosemont has gotten a lot better in the last decade. So, you know, nobody, uh, I mean, and you're you're not there to go see Rosemont. You're there for the show and there's all sorts of related activities, you know, meetings and and things 
with the hobby. So the fact that you're out by the airport as opposed to down, say, on the Magnificent Mile is okay because, you know, you're not there to be a tourist so much, although that's a nice aspect. I've checked. It is uh, August 10 to 14, 2021 at the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center there in Rosemont. So uh, it might not be the city of broad shoulders, but we are headed back to Chicago next year. Now, let's go back to this issue because there was one other thing that stood out, and then you're going to talk about letters. This was the special show edition, you know, all sorts of coverage of Boston. And I think there's um, Boston collectors and medals and all this jazz. In the news that week was Representative Frank Anunzio, chairman of the House Consumer Affairs and Coinage Subcommittee. He was continuing to work tirelessly to advance legislation to celebrate the Olympics, the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics on commemorative coins. Ultimately, that legislation was successful. There are some commemorative coins for that. This was the new, the rebirth, you will, of um, commemorative coins in the U.S. after the 1982 Washington half. So this was any commemorative coin even today is, is big news in coin world, but certainly there was lots of ink spilled talking about those efforts and the lobbying and uh, the various contortions of, of how many coins could be issued and how many people had, had signed on to buy them and who wanted to support them. And so that's um, interesting. I just think it's a reminder of how the process for American coinage and metals is a political one, and these are political vehicles. So we can't divorce politics when we're talking about numismatic objects because they're instrumental in their creation. What stood out to you though, Chris? So looking at the letters page, as anyone who's been listening to the show for some time has probably noticed, I tend to pick letters that are to one degree or another in conversation with one another, you know, whether they're taking different sides of an issue where they're different takes on the same issue. You know, I try to find letters that are connected by some theme or in some way connect to the theme of other segments of the show. This one, I found two letters to the editor that were both tonally different and, you know, and, and expressed different views on, on an issue. So the first of which is entitled quality first price second. And it reads quote, I am writing this letter concerning the state of the rare coin market. I've been hearing so much lately about how slow the coin market is. I've also talked to so many dealers at shows and on the phone that are very discouraged about the lack of sales. When I see the inventory of these dealers, very often it is quite apparent to me why their sales are down. The collectors and investors are much more sophisticated today and demand high quality and are willing to pay for it. Most of the dealers that are complaining the loudest about slow sales are those with only marginal quality coins. These dealers have refused to pay a little extra in the past in order to obtain true gem and superb quality coins. They bought coins solely on what they considered to be bargain prices. Many dealers put price as their first consideration and quality second. This is why they have a hard time selling these coins. Quality will never go out of style, and most often you get what you pay for. I am writing this to let you know that our business has been fantastic during these, quote, troubled times. Dean F. Howe from Salt Lake City. So I take issue with some elements in this column. Um, I think it's a little stuffy, to tell you the truth. And it's answered not directly. I I don't think that these two uh, writers were responding to one another because they're published on the same page. But there was someone else who expressed a a very different view, which and, and I appreciated the contrast. This letter is titled Collects All Grades. And it reads, I get a big kick reading other letters to the editor where the writers who collect gems knock those who collect lesser grades and vice versa. The banter gets so ridiculous at times that I just have to laugh. 
As a true collector who takes great pleasure in collecting coins for themselves, I collect coins in all grades. I can take as much pleasure from acquiring a very fine bust half as from a Gem Morgan dollar. I wouldn't think of knocking a fellow collector for what he collects, since it is his pleasure. Now that investors have cleared out the coin market, I am pleased to see that coin dealers have once again become amicable. I've also noticed the flyby nights have shut down. Greetings to my friends from the North Bay Coin Club of El Cerrito, California. Bruce R. Froman from Modesto, California. So these letters are not really addressing the same issue so much as they're, they just showcase very different sensibilities. And I found a couple things in there. First is, you know, dealer complaints that the market is slow. That is a perennial complaint, but it's definitely something that I've noticed. In not right now. <laughs> in, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think this is this is the first time that this kind of thing has happened since 1918, 1919. So I think that this, I think, is, is an exceptional year in the sense that it doesn't abide by the traditional rules. Well, and, and I, I said that, you know, dealers uh, certainly – in the bullion space uh, or, or shop folks are having bonkers business. Uh, other folks are not, but um, you know. Well, but I mean, I don't think that this moment is indicative of the health of the coin industry so much as demonstrating how a significant outside stress has impacted the coin industry. Sure. Which whether, sure. whether it was health, healthy or not before the pandemic hit, we could have a, yeah, different we have a multi-episode discussion dedicated to that topic. But you know, I found it interesting that they tended to diagnose two different problems in the sense that the first letter diagnosed the problem as dealers whinging and not having taken responsibility to buy nice coins and that the source of their slow business was that they didn't have the foresight to buy good stuff. And the other one was essentially arguing that, you know, a lot of investors had cleaned out really top end stuff and that dealers were now shifting the kind of material that was on offer. I found the line, dealers have once again become amicable. I found that line very, um, very interesting. And, you know, and we, another, you know, lengthy discussion that I'd love to have on some future episode is the sort of shift in the numismatic industry from collecting coins as collectibles to collecting coins as investments. That's a very interesting shift that I would love to analyze uh, at greater length at some point. But I found those two letters really interesting and informative to read. And it's kind of like we say every week, like, you know, reading these letters is interesting because you get a snapshot of what was on the mind of, of some collectors at a particular moment in time. So in August of 1982, this was something that was evidently on some folks' minds. Yeah. So, so uh, other than reading the letters to the editor page, what have you been reading lately? What have I been reading lately? So this week, to acknowledge our the release of Edikin Kovacs' film and to tie in thematically with our interview with Chuck Daughtry, I looked at David Lang's The Complete Guide to Lincoln Sense. I read the third edition. It was originally, the book was originally published in 1996, um, and it had a couple of editions that were published subsequently. I read the third edition, which was published in 2005. So uh, it's interesting, towards the end of his section on history, he says, you know, will the scent survive until 2009 is what he posed in this edition. And it's, you know, that question has been uh, asked and answered. We still have the scent today in, in 2020. So the book itself, for anyone interested in Lincoln Sense, you know, I'm not saying anything that someone hasn't already said, but it, it is an indispensable volume. Reading, I found the history section, he, he begins with the history of the Lincoln Scent. I'm going back to, you know, Victor David Brenner's conversations with Teddy Roosevelt and the Mint. You know, the controversy about his initials, the compositional change during World War II. 
the history that he's written is is very readable and obviously very very well researched and so i that was the part that i found the most interesting but the book itself is far more than just a history because it includes a grading guide a guide to varieties and date and mint analyses for i believe every entry in the series talking about how many were minted what the strike you know which coins exhibit what qualities of strike it's fabulously useful and i found reading particularly the history section to be really really enjoyable so anyone who's interested in learning more about lincoln sense and more about the scent and the design that has encompassed the most recent chapter of the sense life definitely go and read um the complete guide to lincoln sense it's it was it was enjoyable to read and it's um i think a very valuable resource awesome now i think it's time for me to ask you another question and for you to answer one from last oh, week. Oh boy, yep. Gotta 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 quiz me now. So last week I asked you which US city now has a mint, but no Federal Reserve Bank, just a branch bank. We were talking about striking coins and errors and varieties and all that, I think, when I asked this a while back. Was that our interview with Diamond, with Mike Diamond that it accompanied? Yeah, that could I, have been, yeah. 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 So, well, anyway, I'm sure I, a, a listener with clear ears can go back and, and verify it. But I chose it, and uh, I posed it, and now I ask for an answer. This one I actually was able to figure out just because they have a mint branch. That narrows it down quite a bit. Um, the answer is Denver. Yes, you are correct. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, there are 13 branches of the Federal Reserve. Each branch bank is, um, you know, in a major city. And interestingly, Missouri is the only state to have two Federal Reserve branches in the state, one in St. Louis, one in Kansas City. Kansas City covers uh, a lot of that Western area, including Colorado. And each of the 13 districts have sub-district banks or branches. And that is Denver is I believe affiliated with it. Naturally, it makes sense that it would be affiliated with Kansas City because that's, I think, the close closer than San Francisco. Say so that was a novice level question. You aced it. Now we're gonna ratchet it up and give you an expert level question. And this always, is always a dicey proposition, but all right. This is scent related, and the question is: What did the mint find objectionable about the copper nickel alloy used in the first small sense? So you got to go Ooh, way back. Right. Small very sense. Good, very good question. What was objectionable? What was the situation that they said, okay, we're not using this anymore? So think about that. Don't go to Google. Don't, uh, you know, maybe you can go to your Red Book or something, a Coin World Almanac, but uh, we'll have the answer to that next week. In the meantime, we are going to have our interview with Chuck Daughtry about the Scent Project, give you a look into what that all entails, why we think it's important for the hobby, and how you can participate. Here it is. We are delighted today to be joined by Chuck Daughtry, owner of coppercoins.com, and really the instigator of this amazing project uh, or effort called the Scent Project. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Most collectors in the U.S. anyway will have gotten their start looking through coins in change. And, you know, obviously the starting point for many was the Lincoln scent. You're sort of taking that search through change and putting it into hyperdrive. Can you explain what is the scent project? Well, the first thing that we have to understand when we're talking about the coins that are in circulation is that nobody really knows what's out there. 
We don't know what is scarce. We don't know what is common. We just make that assumption based on what we can find and what we haven't found in our own individual searches. This project is a, it's at least an attempt to put everyone's searches together so that we can all see what's out there. And everything from Alaska to Florida and Maine to California, Hawaii, everywhere in the country, we're trying to put all those searches together into one database so we can see just how scarce any individual issue actually is. So what are some of the, um, you know, you're going to be looking for uh, like small date, large date in the 1960. What what are you looking for? What are, you're asking collectors to, um, I guess that's probably the more important part. Let's go backward. You're asking collectors to obtain a certain amount of Lincoln cents from the bank and go through there and sort them by date and mint mark and then maybe varieties as well. How does that look like? How does that work? Well, for the non-collector or for the beginner collector who doesn't think they have what it takes to find the large and small date, we are only asking for date and mint mark. And you take your coins, you sort them out by date and mint mark, you make a count of each date and mint mark, put it down on a sheet, and we'll tally that together with all the rest of the data. And we're looking for roughly 40,000 people to do that. And when you get your data back, we're, we're looking for $25 box to start. If you can do more than one $25 box, that's fine. And I say box because generally coins come in $25 bricks from the bank. Yeah. And if you can get $5 worth of rolls from Walmart, that's fine too. Yeah. Just the idea is just in aggregate, you want to have everybody look through $50 of cents. Is that right? Right. That's true. And essentially what I'm looking for is to try to evenly spread the job throughout the country because I'm trying to find out what's in circulation throughout the entire country. So it wouldn't be fair to represent 49 of the states and then have nobody from Vermont do any searches. You wouldn't want to limit it to just California, Florida, New York. You know, you want right. to have it dispersed all over. Exactly. So it's kind of like we can say an electoral college of counting coins. And the timing could have worked to parallel the uh, of the election season, but because of COVID-19 and the resulting coin shortage, that has pushed this project a little bit, right? It's really put a kibosh on the whole thing for this year because there's so many people telling me they can't get a hold of coins. The initial deadline was going to be the 1st of September, and we were going to try to have everything in by the 1st of September, and I was going to start doing the count. That way we could have a good set of data with a number of resulting queries from that data available by the end of the year. And that's just not going to work because of COVID. Uh, I've gone ahead and made the deadline an entire year out. So it's the, the end of August this coming year. Okay. So we've got plenty of time to get over this coin shortage and get out there and find more bricks of coins and start counting them. The resulting influx of, of money into the coin supply, that will sort of, how, how will that affect, do you think, that the results of what's out there? Do you expect to see a lot more like wheat cents and, you know, are people going to be turning in unk rolls? What's, what do you, do, does that even matter since those are, they are technically still in the money supply, even if they're sequestered at somebody's piggy bank? It kind of leads me to another another sentence, and I'll just say that first. A lot of people ask, what happens when I find a whole box of 2020 pennies? I said, well, just tell me you found a whole box of 2020 pennies. That's part of circulation. That's what we're looking for. Everything that's in circulation, regardless of where it came from, regardless of when it came from, if someone finds an entire roll of Indian head pennies, we're going to count them. 
Yeah. Because it's it's merely reflecting the reality and what exists in the in the present state. Exactly. And that's okay. what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell exactly what really is out there. Are there more 1965 pennies out there than there are 1983? We just don't know. A concept that Jeff and I have discussed on the podcast in regards to the scent, both in regards to keeping the scent, maintaining the denomination, despite its very limited buying power, and just as a comment about, you know, how scent circulate, you know, we talk about circulation velocity. And Jeff alluded to this in his previous question about how, in, in some cases, scents become sequestered in people's homes or in people's couch cushions or in people's, you know, car seats, you know, wherever it is that, you know, that that scents happen to fall into. What is your sense as to how these scents circulate and how have and have you modeled any of that into this project? Have you thought about, you know, the fact that these things don't often circulate very far after their release because they just end up in someone's piggy bank? Well, there's a large number of the coins that do end up just going into a sequestered pile somewhere. But there are also a large number of coins that still do circulate. I lived in Florida for quite some time. And living in Florida, you would only expect to see Philadelphia Mint since, since generally the Philadelphia Mint distributed everything east of the Mississippi River. And you wouldn't believe the number of D-Mint cents that I found down there just because of travelers, people traveling and spending money. Now, what they're attempting, I guess, is to going into a cash, cashless society where we don't have coins and, and notes. I don't know how that's going to affect things into the future, but where we are right now, we still have plenty of coins circulating all across the country. Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, I I think people are concerned about this idea of cashless society, but we hear that every few years and there's some impetus for it and, and COVID is the impetus right now. But I don't, you know, I think all these fears usually end up bubbling up the tensions released the it's it's discussed for a little while and then people move on to the next thing your math your modeling says you need something like 44,000 people to participate in the scent project to sort through 200 yeah it'd be about 80,000 boxes 80,000 boxes which is but but each box is um 5,000 coins, correct? 50 it's times 2,500 coins. 2,500, 20, 50 times 50. That's right. So so two boxes is 5,000. You need, the goal is to get 220 million cents looked at. Yes. And that number represents what you think is like 1% of all the memorial cents issued from 1959 to present? Uh, no, actually, I believe it represents a number. I've done a little bit of research on it, and I believe it does a due diligence to finding 1% of everything currently in circulation, of all of the cents currently in circulation. Okay, not all those minted during this certain time, just looking at based on what the Federal Reserve says is out there? Yes. Okay, so 1% is a large enough snapshot uh, when it's done across the nation mathematically, is that, I mean, I, I'm no mathematician. That's why I'm a writer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a mathematician either. That's why I'm a coin guy. But uh, <laughs> the thought is that you're taking a reasonably viable, statistically large enough chunk of coins when you take one one hundredth of everything that's out there. You count up that one one hundredth of everything that's out there, and then you can multiply each individual result by 100 to get an approximation of what's really there. 
Okay. This is an idea that you've had for quite a while, but it's something that you haven't really been able to develop until 2020. What changed and what's made it more feasible? Two words, social media. Back in 2007, I decided to do this and I was attempting to gather my sampling of people through the internet, through email and through word of mouth and uh, through chat groups on, on different websites. And I was able to obtain about 110 people and 110 people certainly couldn't do the job of 40,000. And I saw that the number that we were going to be able to collect would not be statistically reasonable. And I kiboshed the project. And this was in 2007, 2008. And I extended the deadline. I did everything I could to try to find more people, and it just didn't work out. So I had a guy, I don't even know his name anymore, unfortunately, on Facebook say something about trying to figure out what all is out there in circulation. And then that, that just kind of hit me in the head. I've already done this. I've already got the website for it. So I decided to reactivate it and uh, put it out there on Facebook and put it out there on YouTube and the other communities. And I now have almost 700 people willing to sort through at least two boxes, some of them up to six or eight boxes of Lincoln cents by the deadline. And so I have probably about one-tenth of the entire group accounted for simply because I've got a number of people willing to do one or two boxes, but I've got others who have said they would do six, eight, ten boxes. And that was a, a surprise to me because I, I don't, I'm not sure I would even do ten boxes myself. And these folks that are willing to do multiples, are they honoring and, and promising to um, spread that out so that it, you're not bunched up in certain areas? I mean, how do, what does that look like? They are reasonably spread out throughout the country. I mean, I've got a number of them in California and Florida, and I've got one in uh, one in Indiana. I've got a few in Texas. So, I mean, they're all over the country. And social media certainly helps that because you don't have any choice but to have people from all over the entire country when you start any kind of a, a group. And I started a group on Facebook, The Scent Project on Facebook, and it currently has a number of people in it. And those people are all excited to get counting. And I have put together the website, thescentproject.com, and that is where you can go read all of the news and updates on the project itself and get the forms to actually collect your data onto. We're going to be doing it on, on paper forms where you can just print it out and sit in the comfort of your own home, count your coins, and then write them down. And then you can either scan them in, photograph it or whatever, and send it back to me and I'll get it into the database. What do you think the hobby can learn from your crowdsourcing approach? It seems like this project would be, as you just alluded to in your last couple of comments, this project would be incredibly daunting for an individual, but spread out over a fairly large group of people, assuming you have some people willing to, to help collate the data and, and to help gather it. You know, what can coin collectors, in what other areas of numismatics can the same approach be applied? Well, in other areas of numismatics, I would think that if we did a count of all the state quarters, we would know whatever happened to all of those. Yeah, you could do this with any denomination or any age of coin. Uh, we could do it to, uh, I don't know, to show the circulation of dollar coins versus dollar bills. We know that's going to be very small. And I think that anytime you approach something in a crowd environment, you can make money real quickly through um, a whole bunch of people donating a dollar. Well, that's kind of the, the idea that I've come across here is trying to get everyone in the country involved in, in doing a very small part of the project. That way, the project overall can be accomplished. And it's a, 
a huge and daunting process for anyone to try to do without the crowdsourcing. So it's really helping a lot. Have you done actually undertaken what you're asking people? What what kind of time does it take to go through a box and and record what's in there? Um, you know, I I can recall when I was a, a kid going through the bag of five thousand wheat cents that my dad ordered from Verge Marshall, and you know we were looking, you know, trying to put together the blue folders. What kind of time investment is is this? And um, it seems like it would be a good project for families. Well, some of that's going to depend on your eyesight and how well you can see the dates on the coins. But generally, if you can see relatively well, and you can do this in a relatively quick period of time with 10 containers, you need one for each of the last digit of the date. So you're going zero through nine, and you just plop the coins into the container for the last digit of the date. And then you put the other nine away and grab one, assumably the zero, and you go through it, and you're only going to find coins that end in zero. And it makes the sort real quick, and it's a very efficient way of sorting. I've got that up on the website on on thescentproject.com. And I can do a $25 box in about three or four hours. Okay. So do two boxes. That's like two nights with, you know, have your son or daughter there sitting and helping and looking and and doing something together and, uh, you know, participating in the hobby at, at a basic level and having a little fun. Right. And if you have the typical attention deficit of most people, you're going to be looking at probably three days to sort a box. And we're talking about a year from now that I need the results. Okay. So of the information you've gathered thus far, what of it do you think is the most useful for coin collectors to understand? What I've gathered so far was just on back in those days, we were talking about $50 bags because they didn't typically do the $25 boxes. And I found a few people to go out and get $50 bags or get $50 worth from their bank and sort through them. And what I found in that period of time was, we're talking about 10 years ago, was that the early zinc cents were already becoming difficult to find. The issues between 1985 and 1988 were already much smaller in number compared to their own circu- uh, their own mintage than the, the copper cents that had been in circulation prior to 1983. And for that, we're finding that, okay, well, the copper cents tend to be falling out of circulation now, and that is a lot because of the hoarding and also because of age. People are hoarding the copper cents thinking they're going to be able to melt them at some point in time and make money on them. And so they're, they're hoarding closets full of those things. And so now I'm expecting to see from the limited data that I gathered in 2007, I'm expecting to see that the number of copper cents have fallen dramatically to measurably equal the number of coins that have fallen out of circulation in the 1980s because of the material they were made of and the fact that they corrode and basically dissolve quickly. I imagine that the mint is probably aware of some of this attrition qualities that you're talking about. But in terms of scent design or in terms of even maintaining the scent as, as a purely practical matter, what do you think the data that you've looked at says as far as what we should consider about the scent's composition and how practical it is to retain it? Uh, the scent composition, I believe, should go. Re- it should revert back to what we had before. Those coins were minted to... Before 1982, just to be yes, clear. before 1982, okay. sorry. So we should go back to mainly a copper-based composition that doesn't corrode. Zinc is not a good material to make coins out of because zinc is reactive to oxygen. 
And to go back to the composition that we had prior to 1982, I think would be a little more expensive to create the coins. But I think mathematically, we should be able to work out that the newer coins are attritioning out faster than the cost of making the older coins. So you could make five new coins for every one old coin, but seven new coins are going away faster than one old coin is. And so you're actually wasting money with this new composition. That's interesting because I think that when most people think about retaining or eliminating the cent as a practical matter, they just look at, you know, it costs two point whatever cents or however many cents it costs to make an individual cent for, you know, one cent worth of face value. But this strikes me as being analogous to the dollar coin versus dollar bill debate in the sense that a dollar coin might be a little bit more costly to produce up front, but it lasts in circulation considerably longer than a one dollar bill, which has a circulation life. I've read different numbers, but of about 22 months. So do you think that that's something that's missing from the discussion of retaining or eliminating the scent, the idea of just creating a longer lasting scent to cut down on production costs? Definitely. We're looking at only half the equation, and that's the cost of making it, not versus the cost of how long it takes, I mean, how, what it's worth to us because of the amount of time it sticks around. I would argue that part of that discussion of the time it sticks around centers around the fact that one cent is almost meaningless in a transactional sense, uh, no pun intended, you know, the, that, you know, we, we hear anecdotally people who get cents and just throw them on the ground, you know, because they don't want to carry them or whatever, or they, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the circulation velocity, they, they throw them in a jar and once every 10 years they, they go cash them in. Uh, that I think is more drives the lack of circulation than anything else. They're low face value. Right. Lack of value is an, indeed one of the parts of it, but you have to imagine making change and paying sales tax on things. And people talk about how dropping the cent and going to the sales tax rounded to the nearest nickel would be a bad thing for consumers because it would end up costing us more money to purchase things. So they complain about that, yet they also complain about having the cent in circulation. Well, the cent is the answer to not having to pay too much for sales tax if that's the direction you believe. Certainly the number of uh, digital payments, and we're seeing that now, you know, as people, that's one of the reasons cited for this shortage is, you know, everybody's paying digitally. You don't have that rounding in, in a digital payment platform. That's correct. And in fact, we could even go a further step beyond the cent if they really thought about it and had taxes to the half cent. And there would be a lot of a lot of funding generated just by taxes to the half cent on a digital currency. You didn't even think about that, right? <laughs> the rounding issue is also something that we've dis that has been discussed by a couple of our previous guests, um, Zach Edick and Jamie Kovach, who in in their um, documentary on the cent had different economists weigh in as to whether rounding to the nearest you know nickel, the nearest five cent um, denomination would hurt or help consumers and individual in-person transactions. But the idea of a half-cent rounding on digital transactions would be really interesting, even just as a way to incentivize people to try to use cash, although some businesses really prefer cash because they don't have to deal with the pay electronic payment fees. So there are a number of inter interesting issues there. Well, your theorists out there believe that rounding and doing digital currency and things like that are a way of tracking people and tracking you in your everyday life. Well, Google does that already. So you don't yeah, have to my, worry my about cell that. phone does that. <laughs> yeah, right. So you don't have to worry about that with your cash. And I think 
part of the cashless society thing is to kind of take out the disease of cash because there is a lot of dirty on the money. A lot of, you know, drugs, disease, all kinds of other things get put onto coins and stuff because people touch them. And that is, it, it's not as bad as it sounds, but it is real that digital currency is cleaner than cash. Yeah. Let's steer back, though, to the uh, the impetus for our discussion today. Sure. We can discuss the merits of the cent and digital payments and all that sort of thing. But the root of the issue now is understanding what is out there. You said that you have about 700 folks signed up. And because of their willingness to sort multiple boxes, you think you can conceivably represent 10% of the total coins that you need searched. Right. There's still quite a gap. So how can we close the gap? You know, this is your call to action for the, the listener to to participate. What's the benefit of participating and where can they go to get more information? Well, the first premise of a scam is that they want money. They're asking you for money. I'm not asking anyone for any money. So we can drop that right away. All we're looking for is people to look through coins. Yep. That's it. Spend a little bit of time, look through some coins, tell us what you found. And with that, I would think that there would be coin clubs and uh, collecting groups, coin collectors reading magazines, listening to your podcast out there that would be willing to join and be a part of this huge project. Because it's my thought that once we get this project done and make these numbers available to the U.S. Mint, they would sponsor having it done again and again because they know that we care enough to find out what's out there. And being able to get enough people to put this together as a grassroots campaign, you might say, is very important to me. And I think it would be very important to the numismatic community altogether because we would be able to find any circulating scarcities. We would be able to pluck out maybe another 1983 copper cent. We might be able to pluck out a few of the really nice double dies. And that is enough right there to say, okay, well, we know that if we look through enough change and we kind of know what we're looking for, we can find the stuff that's out there. And it is still out there. I just think it would be a, a, a really nice, fun project. It would help us figure out what we're spending our money on in making coins, whether or not the coins that we're making are actually fulfilling the purpose that, they've, that they were made for, what needs to be changed, if anything, because we don't know that anything really needs to be changed with the way they're doing it. Perhaps the government got it right. Perhaps everything that we've got going on right now is exactly what should be going on, and we will find that in the numbers. Just to pivot a little bit to some of your, your other work, you run coppercoins.com, which serves as a forum for discussion of copper coins. You've been talking about sort of the crowdsourcing nature of the Send Project. To what extent do users of coppercoins.com contribute to the body of knowledge on the copper coins that the site is dedicated to? And which copper pieces have you found have the largest following? Coppercoins.com is basically a compendium encyclopedic category, or a catalog, I'm sorry, of all of the die varieties known for the Lincoln scent. And die varieties are in name basically double dies, mint mark varieties, and anything that works from the design of the die itself. That's what we're researching. That's what we're putting together. I'm putting together photographs of every one of those so people can identify their own and collect based on what they can see in the images on the website. And the crowdsourcing part of it is that we, we do or we have in the past and will in the future 
run an attribution service where people can look up what they have. If they think they have something new, contact us. Let us know what they have that they think is a new variety. And if they indeed probably did find a new variety, they can send it to us for photography and inclusion on the website, and then we'll send it back to them. And they'll get credit on the website for having found that particular dive variety. And what we're looking for into the future is to be able to spread this throughout numismatics to the other modern coin denominations, like the, the Roosevelt dime, for instance, and use the same programming that we will be coming up with for copper coins to be able to modularly stick that into another web domain and have someone run it for nickels, for dimes, for quarters, and really spread the overall education of what's out there in your change to everyone who collects every U.S. coin. That's the brainchild. That's where we were going. That's where I was supposed to be in 2001. And of course, that didn't happen. So we're, we're still working on it. Right. So when I was first getting into coin collecting about a dozen or so years ago, I saw ads for books telling the reader that a $10,000 cent could be in their change. How many of the cents that have been cataloged through all of these different efforts, how many of those cents really match that description? And is that sort of overselling the potential value and rarity of some of these varieties that you're working on cataloging? Oh, I'm sorry, that was part of the previous question. I did not get into it. It was the, the coins that were like the coup d'etat of the, of the hunt, the, the, the biggest coins that have been found out there. I've seen a few 19, there's a massive double dive, 1970 San Francisco, and I've seen a few of those found. And I've seen uh, one example of a 1969 S uh, Lincoln sent with doubling on the obverse. Those are extremely scarce. We're talking fewer than 50 of them known. And one was found and reported to me. And I, I thought that was really, really nice. We found a number of, of new dive varieties, but None of them would be ones that I call them my granny coins. They're the ones that your granny would recognize what it is because she could see it. And I've I found a number of, of things that are not granny coins. You actually have to know what you're doing. But a few of them I found or have been found and reported to me were the granny coin types that were really nice stuff that no one has ever seen before that we've managed to photograph and get into the listing system. A friend of mine in 2007, 2006 or seven, I believe, uh, found a 1982 Lincoln cent that had massive doubling on the reverse side, on the back side. Sent the coin to me and I photographed it and it became national news. In fact, Coin World was the first to run it. And it's a beautiful double die. To date, only three have been found and it can bring $10,000. And we don't know where the rest of them are. We assume that every time a coin is minted from a die, you're going to have at least fifty to 100,000 more of those somewhere. But when you only find three of something, you really have to wonder. And uh, who knows what might pop up and be discovered in the Scent Project as work continues on that in the next year? Exactly. That's part of the excitement of the whole thing. Not only do we get scientific numbers back out of this, but we get people finding really groovy stuff. Awesome. Well, and certainly a year from now or so, we'll have to touch base with you and find out what you found and share that with the listeners. We can certainly suggest and, and promote that, you know, this is a, a, a neat project and uh, we'll have all the links to the Coin World stories and to the Facebook group and the website in our show notes. Thank you for discussing the Scent Project with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. 
Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Chuck Daughtry. We had a great time learning about the Scent Project, and we'd like to encourage uh, any of our listeners who are interested to consider signing up to look through some scents and contribute to the project. It's obviously it'll take a little bit of time to sort through so many scents, but you know you might consider doing it if you want to help out on what is to us a really interesting ongoing numismatic project. And hey, you never know, you might find a variety or something fun or cool or rare, uh, maybe even valuable, who knows? You can do it with uh, family, kids, whatever. Uh, It's a way to have fun in the hobby that doesn't break the bank, which is always one of the things we try to stress because after all, this is a big tent hobby. It's all about having fun. If you have had fun listening to any of our previous episodes, if you enjoyed this episode, our interviews, and if you've enjoyed any of our content, uh, please remember to keep on listening every week and subscribe. That is the, the best way for you to support the show. And feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, concerns, or really just to say hi. We, we love to hear from listeners and, you know, and we love to hear um, ideas for how the show can be improved or otherwise just, just feedback in general. So please keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. And until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.